Hello, everybody. Welcome to Stock Options Straight Talk. Uh, I am your host, Colin Cadmus, a lifelong salesperson, two times VP of sales, and recent founder of my own uh, consulting and advisory firm where I'm helping uh, startups scale and build world-class sales organizations. Tonight, we have prepared for you an exciting, first-of-its-kind live event, whether you are an individual contributor or an executive leader Tonight, we're going to teach you all of the details that you need to know to fully understand your equity. We've got a packed 90-minute agenda, so I'm jumping straight into things. Uh, we'll be taking questions throughout, so drop them in the Q&A. And without further ado, allow me to introduce to you our three subject matter experts, Scott Lease, Richard Harris, and Sam Jacobs. Scott Lease is a six-time startup sales leader and author of Addicted to the Process, Richard, or sorry, Scott is the founder of both Scott Lee's Consulting and the Surf and Sales Summit. Scott is a consultant and strategic advisor to companies around the world and was recently named top 25 sales leaders by Crunchbase. Richard Harris is a sales leader and trainer with over 20 years of experience helping startups build their sales infrastructure and train their sales teams to get there faster. Richard is the founder of the Harris Consulting Group and the co-founder of the Surf and Sales Summit. And last but certainly not least, Sam Jacobs is the founder of Revenue Collective, a community of over 2,000 global revenue executives and top performers at high growth companies all over the world. Scott, Richard, Sam, thank you guys so much for agreeing to come talk about this important topic. Uh, I think employees and executives are often oversold or misled when it comes to equity. So uh, I'm excited to dive in with you guys. Yeah, thanks, for, uh, thanks for helping us put this together, Colin. For sure, for sure. Um, so give the audience a, a sense of what the agenda looks like. I've broken it down into five parts and we're gonna spend roughly 30 minutes on the first four parts and then the fifth part uh, is gonna be about an hour. So in part one, we're doing the high level introduction. We're just gonna define what stock options are, what they're for, why they're, why they're out there. Uh, part two, we'll go into expectations based on your role. Are you an AE, an SDR, are you a VP of sales? What should you expect? And we'll try to break that down by uh, stage of your company as well. Part three, we'll go into some key definitions and terms that, that we'll uh, make sure you understand. And part four is stuff you usually don't know, but should. So we'll start to get into the interesting things there. And then part five is where we're going to go through each of our panelists. They'll have about 20 minutes each to talk about hot topics for them and different ideas that they think are exciting um, that should be looked at and considered to change for the future. So without further ado, Sam, do you want to kick it off? What are stock options? Why are they issued? Why are they a thing? Okay. So let me uh, thank you, Colin. Honored to be here. Honored to be with uh, this estimable group. Uh, including Scott and Richard. Um, so first, a, a couple, a caveat, you know, like a financial advisors, past performance, no indication of future results. And I'm not an accountant and I'm not a lawyer. So please, I will not be liable if I, if I miss, if I misspeak. And there are so many different variations of some of these ideas and some of these terms that what I'm going to focus on is the most common. So the most common, uh, when we, when we say stock options, what do we mean? We mean the option to purchase a share of common stock from the company that you're referring to, typically that you're working for. And that, that option, is, is it's, not, it's not a security unto itself. What it is is the right to buy a security, the security being a share of stock. So uh, when you're granted equity uh, options, when you join a company, what you're typically granted is an, an amount of options 
that vest over a period of time, typically four years. As they vest, what does vest mean? It means it triggers your ability to actually exercise that right and purchase the stock, meaning unvested equity. You do not actually have the right to buy the stock. You are granted that right at a certain price. The price is typically the most recent valuation that the company has gone through, either because they've priced a funding round or because there's been an independent audit that's called a 409A valuation that puts a price on the security. So um, what am I missing? Uh, I mean, there, there are different types, right? There's NSOs and ISOs uh, related to whether you're a contractor or whether you're an employee of the company. But the most important thing to just understand is it's not a share of, of stock. It is the right to purchase a share of stock, which some people get confused on. The other thing that we'll talk about you know, later on is that it's the right to purchase the uh, most junior security in the preference stack, right? So the way that um, people should think about, uh, you know, financing a company is that you put in money and you have rights associated with it. And the most senior uh, security is going to be debt, right? I lend you money before any of the equity shareholders who are the investors, before they get their money back, the debt gets paid back. And then the equity gets paid back after the debt. And there are different types of equity. There are different securities, each with different preferences and different rights. And when investors, when venture capital firms or other people typically put in money, they are typically granted not common stock. They're typically granted preferred stock or some other type of security that has more senior rights. So what you need to understand is when you're granted options, you're granted the right to purchase stock at a specific price, common stock, which sits beneath, it sits at the bottom of the preference stack relative to the rest of the investors and the capital providers in the company. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sam. So guys, if I'm if I'm joining a company, there's different there's different roles, right? Let's say we'll use three examples. I'm joining as an SDR or an AE or I'm joining as a VP of sales or a, or or a CRO. What should I expect? How much money am I going to make off of my options? How many options should I get? How do I look at that? Well, I'll I'll tackle this one first, maybe. Um, well, let me start with the, the role. So your expectations as an SDR, quite frankly, should probably be that you don't get any equity in an, in an early stage organization. Um, I know that that is not a popular opinion necessarily, and I'm, I'm not even saying that it's the right way to do it. Um, I just think that that is very common still, and, and if you want to set yourself up for realistic uh, offers, you're probably not going to get that in the original offer of your employment. Um, you might be able to earn options uh, and grants uh, along the way through performance and tenure and things like that, um, but I think it would be a mistake for you to have an expectation that as an SDR, you're immediately entitled in your first offer of you know, 500 options or 1,000 options or 10,000 options or something like that. Um, so I think your expectation should be should be none. And I think you should view getting options in an initial offer as a, a really favorable offer and, and, a, and a, a signal that, um, you know, the company that you're going to work for potentially really believes in, in sharing, uh, you know, ownership in the organization. So what if I, Scott, so what if I am an SDR and, and I do get stock options, what can I expect that to amount to in, in your typical scenario? I mean, in a best case scenario, like you might end up with five figures, low, low kind of five figures, realistically, because as an SDR, you're, you're going to get, you know, maybe 500 options or, you know, maybe a couple thousand 
you know, at the most. And and if you do the if you do the math on like a billion dollar exit, which we would all love to have, which is like a best case kind of situation, um, it doesn't shake out much more than you know a, uh, a down payment, maybe uh, at, at best. You know, maybe you buy a new car or something like that. Um, it's not going to be any kind of life changing money whatsoever. But right, so you take your family on a nice vacation or get a car, you know, ten to ten to fifty thousand. So it's safe to say, no matter how cool the startup, if I'm joining as an SDR, uh, I'm probably not becoming a millionaire, and I'm definitely not retiring, uh, regardless of the exit scenario. I mean, if you do do the math, if you have a thousand shares at ten bucks a share, that's ten thousand dollars, right? Not not every organization ends up. Uh, getting to ten bucks to share. Right. So what about as an AE? Is it is it drastically well, different? I want to jump in there for a second, Colin. So the other thing, I think, particularly for SDRs and AEs, um, and anyone, but particularly SDRs, your goal of the exit, you know, if you can get some options and some cash, is it's great. Like that's awesome. Uh, it's it's literally icing on a very small piece of cake. Um, but what your real expectation is, you now have a successful exit. You've got something on your resume that says, hey, I've been part of this growth startup. I've helped get it to here. I understand what that's like. And so where your income will become affected by that will actually be in your career. It jumps you ahead of the next person who hasn't had an exit. Right. And so that's a so there are different, you know, there's this tangible money thing of options. And then there's this other thing of, wait a minute, this can also help me make money in a whole other way, right? If you can start getting higher salaries at the age of 25, then, you know, two or three other people, then by the time you're 30, your salary should still be getting higher. And 40, so it, it has sort of this, this compounding interest effect on the exit. Yeah. I'm, I've been talking about near-term kind of value. Richard's absolutely correct. Talking about the more long-term value over the course of your career. Yeah, and I saw that I saw that play out at my first company, single platform. After they had a huge exit, um, many, many, many of those folks who had less than a year, maybe a little over a year of sales experience, straight out of school, because they lived through that exit. Even though they didn't get rich off of it, right? They maybe got a, a little bit of cash, uh, but they went on to be directors of sales. Uh, they went on to be VPs of sales, and now I know multiple of them have second exits uh, under their belt at like the age of 24, 25. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you stopped me there. Um, hey, Colin, can I jump in real quick? There's just some basic, some basic stuff that we just got to make sure we cover that I've seen questions around. So the first is that you know I saw some questions in the in the bottom thing ask a question and people are saying like is a thousand options good? Is 500 options good? Let me just give you some basic terminology and some some understanding so that you want that 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 question actually doesn't. Unfortunately, I'm not trying to be a dick. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. The first yeah. thing that you need to understand is what are the total shares outstanding, right? So the company has a right to issue a certain number of shares. How many shares have they issued? Typically, so for my company, Revenue Collective, it's a million shares, right? We've issued, we have a, a total of a million shares outstanding. Many companies, it might be 2 million, 10 million, right? So and outstanding, Sam, means when you say outstanding, it means that's how many shares exist that can be issued, right? Well, there's two ways to talk about outstanding, actually. There's how many have been issued and how many can they issue? Because one of the things that happen when you go through a financing round is uh, you create an option pool for the employees specifically. 
that's typically 20% of the entire company, right? So it could be 10, 15% or 20%, but those options may not have been issued if the people have not yet joined the company. So there is total shares outstanding now, which is all of the people that you've issued shares to, but you still might have you know, a big chunk of, of equity that hasn't been issued because you're waiting to hire Scott Lease to be your CRO or Colin Cadmus to be your CRO or Richard or et cetera. In that case, you want to ask what's the total possible, right? What is the total available shares to, to be out? I see. So outstanding That's has been be issued, but there's a total number. So you could have 10 million shares. You've only issued 5 million. Exactly. Exactly. So that's kind of one thing. So when you take a look at your 5,000 or 1,000 options, you need to divide that number over the total shares outstanding to understand what is the implicit value. Now, there's another question, which is, well, what does it mean to have a value? Because if, so again, like there's a price per share and you, and it would be a mistake that the, the value of those options is not the, val the number of options times the price per share, just to be extremely uh, direct, right? Because that's the that's the size of the check that you will have to write to buy the stock. That's not so. I've had an offer letter from two companies ago where they're like, the market value of these options is nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Like, well, not really. That's the size of the check that I have to write. Yeah. We need we need an outcome that is greater than that to equal a return, right? So if the price per share is two bucks and there's a million shares outstanding, then the value of the company, the value of the equity, is two million dollars. Right. And then I need an outcome that is four dollars or four million, uh, an enterprise value of four million dollars to, to equal some gain. And then my gain is the, you know, the, the realized price less the strike price. Right. So it's four minus two times my number of shares. That's my gain. So just again, a lot of folks, someone said, what's the what's the first question I should ask? How many shares are outstanding? What's the price per share? What was the most recent valuation? What is the company valued at? Those are the basic questions. If you don't know that, then talking about the number of options just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, that's a great point. Some some companies, it, it could be drastically different because I've seen people who are like, I got 500 options. Is that a lot? And some people say, well, I got 10,000. And they're like, oh, oh how did I get ripped off? Like, no, no, no. It, it you 10,000 could be equal to less than the 500. So you have to follow the math that, that Sam's describing and ask those questions. And by the way, if the hiring manager uh, hesitates to give you that information. Maybe they don't know it and they need to go get it and come back to you. But if someone is hesitant or doesn't or unwilling to share that information with you, that's uh, a major red flag, in my opinion, in the hiring process, especially if you're already employed there. Um, all right, cool. Thanks for that, Sam. Let's let's jump back now. We're talking about the expectations by role. We we set the we set the record straight for SDR. What about an account executive? How different is it for that role? I mean, in, in my opinion, it's a little bit different, but not a lot different. Um, the biggest differentiator, I think, is, is the stage of the company now. Because if you're an AE at an early stage company, part of the allure of, of you taking on that role and responsibility to help prove out product market fit and get the organization going is a decently significant chunk um, you know, of, of, of equity that might turn into something. So. I think in the early stage, you know, I think 10,000 plus shares, depending on all the stuff Sam was talking about, I've seen 5,000 shares. So anywhere from like mid four figures to kind of low end five figures, I think is, is a realistic expectation to, to look for or ask for in a, in an offer letter <clears throat> from an organization. If it's an early stage company, I think the bigger the organization gets and grows, 
your expectations should go way down and start to fall closer to that of what I was saying before in SDR, which is you shouldn't expect equity necessarily at all. Yeah. And it's not uncommon, I think, in those earlier days, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've seen, when you when you are one of those AEs that's joining very early and you're getting a, a nice chunk of options, you're probably not getting your, your market rate OT. You're probably not getting the highest base that you could get. You're probably not getting the best commission plan. And you're sacrificing a little bit in exchange for that. Is that what you guys have seen in most scenarios as well? Yeah, what I what I see is, you know, so there there's this sort of the first AE hired, right? Now they're going to go out and get that person. Um, there's there's some challenges and strengths to being that first person, right? Yep. Oftentimes it doesn't work out, uh, probably yeah. about 50-50% of the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you're an AE or an SDR, keep one thing in mind. In most cases, right, you're there to make other people millionaires and billionaires at startups. That's it. Like that's just the way it's, that's the way. Now, I don't like it, and we, we'll probably get into this later. Scott and I have been ranting about this for a while, but that's just the way it works. As you move higher in your career, right, as you become sort of this te tenured AE field rep, those kinds of things, you don't necessarily get more options, right? You get an opportunity for it, um, but you're not all of a sudden going to strike it rich. Like, it's just, it's not there. Um, so depending on where you are in your career and where that company is from a growth perspective is part of your decision equation, right? You know, I want the win. If I'm, you know, 20 something, 30 something, single, yep. not married, I'll take the risk. I'll go after it. And then I'll use that and parlay that into my next gig. And then my next gig yep. and next gig. You know, if I'm the, the forever AE who doesn't want to manage people and just wants to be a field rep at a great company, well, then those options become a bonus and you, you learn how to negotiate. Well, yeah, the options are, they're interesting, but that's not what's going to, that's not sexy to me as if I'm 20 something, right? Like it's just a totally different thing. So I just want to make sure people have understand some of those things yeah it makes other, sense Go ahead, the other thing to say is, is just you know there's some questions uh about like how do you avoid dilution and and what you're not going to avoid dilution uh that's not a thing um there may Time be some it. executives that have like anti-dilution protection and what would anti-dilution protection mean it would mean that as you raise money you are issued new grants that maintain your percentage ownership of the company but I can tell you it's extremely rare even for executives to get that. And certainly nobody below the executive level is typically going to get that. The share, the investors themselves, who they view themselves as superior humans to all of us, right? And they view themselves as the money. They say, you know, you can get any sweat equity you want, but it's my money. And the money sometimes it doesn't have anti-dilution protection. The only way to make their their percentages why Fred Wilson talks about like sidecar funds because they need an amount of money so that as the valuation rises they can put in more money to maintain their ownership percentage but as employees you're not going to be able to avoid dilution cool and there's a right. of things that are going to happen as well which we will talk about later all of which you know somebody asked like are you going to my my on this talk is probably to try and kill your buzz <laughs> All right. So SDRs, AEs, uh, if you're super early, maybe you're going to get some decent options. You're not retiring off of it. It'll potentially be a nice payday. Uh, but if you're coming in later stage and, and you're getting paid a, a normal salary, uh, it's going to be small. And in many cases, to Scott's point, it, it may be nothing. And, and you're there for the experience. Uh, you're there for the commission. You're there for the benefits. And you're there to learn. Um, and to Richard's point, <clears throat> 
you have the chance to be a part of a great journey that can be the springboard to the rest of your career. Uh, I've seen it happen. And I see a lot of the folks who come into those early AE roles are very entrepreneurial. They want to start their own company someday. And that's why they want to take those risks. They want to see it right uh, on someone else's dime. And so those are good scenarios where you would go into a, a role like that. And the expectations is more about learning and growing than it is about money. Don't look at the, don't rely on that paycheck. Look at it as, as a, it's cool if it happens, right? It's great if it happens. It's great if I get something, but it's not why I'm taking this job. What about the VP, the CRO, right? I've been a VP twice. Scott has been a VP, what was six or five or however many times. Um, Sam's been a CRO multiple times. Richard's run multiple sales orgs. What do we, what's the right expectation um, for a VP of sales? And let's start by just talking about the first VP a, a, a company hires. Maybe they're, they're past their seed stage. They raised some, their first round of, of uh, institutional capital and they're ready to hire their first you know, real VP of sales who has some experience. Maybe they've done it a bit before. It's not a stretch hire. It's not a manager who's going to become a VP. It's someone with a bit of experience to, to do the role. What's the right expectation there? Well, I think, I think with those qualifiers, um, anywhere between one and two and a half percent ownership in the organization would be a reasonable expectation. Now, there's so much nuance involved in that. And uh, I'll tell a quick story to illustrate that. Um, <clears throat> one, of my, one of my most recent VP of, of sales gigs um, about 10 years ago, um, I had 2% ownership in the organization. The last company that I was at, I had a little bit less than that. But I took less than that on purpose because the potential upside of this most recent organization, in my estimation and, and, and others, is about 10x what the first company was, if that makes sense. So it's not to say that you know you you know you could get one and a half in a company that's gonna do a billion dollars, you could get two and a half in a company that's gonna exit for a hundred million, you're gonna come out better in the company that exits for the larger amount. So there's there's nuance there and there's this dance that you, you're going to do with the founder in, in the negotiation. And I, I encourage everybody not to get like too emotionally attached to what you had last time, right? Because if I would have gone to my negotiation and said, look, this last gig, I had two and a half percent, which I, so I went two, two and a half, 1.75, right? So I went up and then so I- Bigger I, companies with higher upside, higher yeah, potential. I took, a, I took a haircut on the points because I, I think that the upside would be significantly larger. And if I tried to, you know, hold my ground and be like, no, I was two and a half last time. I, I want 3% this time. I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have got the gig. But to, to answer your question, you know, if somebody who's been a VP before, you've, you've got experience, I think 1% is, is kind of the, the baseline or the floor and two and a half percent is, is probably the higher end. I've seen as much as three, three and a half percent floated around for CRO kind of roles, depending on the size and stage of the, of the org. Um, but that, that's, that's my experience. Maybe Richard and Sam can expand upon that. Have you guys seen different or do those numbers sound right to you? Those sound about right. I, you know, the last gig I had as a, as a VP of sales was 2012. So as the funding rounds have gotten bigger, <laughs> the grants have gotten bigger. So I had to fight hardcore to get to 1%. They wanted me to do like a quarter of a percent. And what and stage like, was I'm the your, company? 
seed pre-seed okay. okay wow so i was early yeah and and so i was like you guys got to be kidding like i walked away from it like four times but wait um, so it was seed stage and you struggled to get them to one percent i would think that's where you're going to yeah. get the higher percentage no well so that so that had to do with who the founder was and i won't mention the name okay um and sort of uh how things were how things were being promised and not delivered um yep. and actually it was a great technology that does work because their competitor came and just ate their lunch um so i didn't make it through the end but i want to come back to a question that's in there for scott because you you experienced this which is you know when do you start to exercise your options right which means you've got to pay for them right and just so people understand you still have you have the as sam said you get the right to buy them and then you have to decide to buy them which counts and scott will explain that because i know the story but the other thing that happens is the amount of taxes you've got to pay on it and whether or not you're able to hold them for a year or not for them to be shorter long-term capital gains. So Scott, you know, in one of your scenarios where you've exited um, and, and had to buy your options, what was that like? Well, I'll give, I'll give you three quick situations. I don't want to derail Colin's agenda too much, but um, the first one is the, the first time I exercised what amounted to be hundreds of thousands of shares, it cost me like 90 bucks. True story. Because each share was valued at like 0.00001 cents. So it was like unbelievably cheap. So I exercised. You made you made hundreds of dollars. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I ended up making a lot more than that. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. So that, that story had a positive outcome. The, the second story is... Um, I had to come up with almost $200,000 in cash to exercise, right? And I'm now, years later, still sitting on that and, and waiting for some miraculous thing to happen. Said differently, I'm out $200,000 for something that may never come to fruition at all. Third story, I spent... Well, you also had to pay taxes on that too, though, didn't you? Oh, yeah, that kind of stuff we're going to get into later later on, though, for, for sure. But third story, you know, I spent about 150, 160 grand to exercise again, and that outcome is is yet to be yet to be determined. So, one situation that came up with you know dinner for two, and the other situations an extreme amount of money that if 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 I didn't have that kind of money lying around. I'd be hosed. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in the running for some, uh, some exit of any kind. Have any of you guys ever, um, before I, I jump back to, to the agenda, have any of you guys ever experienced or, or know someone who has just a quick, quick answer, an example of you had the options, they vested, you left the company and the decision and you decided, or they decided not to, to, uh, exercise them because they just didn't think, uh, it was going to be worth it. You know, where, where do you where do you draw the line on that decision? Good, Sam. You have to make you make a bet on what you think about the company. And uh, I have a terrible story here because one company I I've been there long enough that I just felt this emotional attachment. One of the things I would say is when you're thinking about exercising your equity and to the point, right? You're writing a check, and then you're typically unless you're writing a check at the most recent valuation, and then you don't have to pay income tax because there's no gain. But if, if there has been a, a recent valuation that puts that means that like you're exercising for five bucks and the company's valued at ten bucks, you actually pay income tax on the def, the difference between ten and five. 
Immediately, so is, right? Immediately, which sucks. And so I did that once because – so the point that I would make is that just every time you write a very large check, just make sure you take a step back and you say to yourself, what else could I do with $175,000, right? I could put it into the stock market. And guess what? No matter what you think about the ups and downs of the stock market, you can get it out anytime you want, right? I could put a down payment on an apartment. And I so I think we get really, really attached and we fail to remember that like there are risk reward profiles. And this is just one choice that you can make among many. So one company, I worked there almost five years. I wrote a check because I just couldn't bear to think of the idea of an exit without uh, me participating in it. And um, I paid a shitload of money in taxes. I wrote a very large check for me at the time. And the company, you know, cut to the end, down round 90%, you know, the, oh. the has been cut in 90 and by 90%, you know, it's around, but nothing's happening. So I learned from that, I thought, and I went to another company and I was leaving and I said, you know what, if I'm not there, that's me voting with my feet. If I'm choosing to leave the company, I'm not going to exercise. And there was, and that was unfortunately live stream. And Livestream was acquired about three months after I left, like right after the 90 day by uh, by Vimeo IAC. And I was getting all these texts from people like, congratulations, high five. This must be awesome. Oh. So I bet wrong both times, um, which sucked. But anyway, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, at least we're learning from someone who's been through it. Um, so real that's quick. Life. Quick answer, um, VPCRO, we said one to two and a half percent at a, like a series A. How different is it, guys, if this is series C, series D, this company's raised, you know, billion plus dollars. Um, they're, they're doing they're cranking revenue. Uh, am I going to expect 5% then or am I going to expect much less? Much less. Much less. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that was clear. Gets bigger, you know, as the company gets bigger, what you need to st- you need to stop thinking about like percentage ownership, and what you need to start thinking about is what is the outcome that would feel acceptable to me, you know, in a variety of scenarios. And so, you know, like if you're a CRO person, if you're Scott or my age, right? And so we're probably not going to go work for somebody unless we think there's at least a seven figure likely likely seven figure outcome, right? I need to at least make a million dollars and probably much more if I'm going to commit the next, you know, two, three, four years of my life. And so then yeah. you look at the value, you look at what you think about the, the, the ability for the company to appreciate value. And you say, does that make sense? Do I feel like this company has an ability to become worth $2 billion? Cause that's what it would take to make me, you know, 2 million bucks or whatever. And how important is it on that note to take into account that the average tenure of these roles is about a year and a half, maybe two oh, years. Massive. Massively important. Preach, Scott. Go for it, Scott. I know where you're going. I just lit the fire. Yeah. About a rant coming. <laughs> yeah, massively, massively important. So, folks, what, what that means is for the VP of sales, the CRO role, the average tenure right now, even for excellent VPs and CROs, uh, is quite short. It's about a year and a half, uh, maybe 18 months, 19 months, maybe two years. If you make it over three years, you're, you're A, you're really good, and you're also really lucky. Um, and so if your options are vesting over four years and, and you're asking the question that Sam just told you to ask yourself uh, in an exit scenario, is this worth it for me? 
you should not be thinking about those options vesting 100%. You should be thinking about what amount of them will probably vest in the yeah. time that I'm going to be here. Uh, and, and don't just assume that you're going to be the one who, who beats the average. Uh, I've done that before. And as we know from recent announcements, uh, I beat the average by like 15 days. So... Uh, <laughs> You, and you, I think that's I even think that's LinkedIn like rounding up to to the to the next month or something. So uh, the, yeah. the, the math that you do on that is you're no longer doing math on two percent, you know, that you own two percent. You, you're right. doing math that you own 0.75 basis points. And then to Sam's point, now you have to do the math and figure out what exit, what liquidity has to happen in order for me to to you know get a windfall of an acceptable number for me. So if I'm looking for a seven-figure seven-figure liquidity or windfall from this on 0.75 basis points, that's got to be a massive multi-billion dollar exit. So don't, don't do the math of your situation based on a four full-year vest if you're in a VP of sales role or, or in my opinion, if you're in any role because yeah. it is very, very rare for any of us right now to go work someplace for four years or longer for a variety of different reasons. And let guys, what happens to the rest of those options when you don't make it the full four years? Well, let me, let me add on to, to Scott's point because I think it's important. And Colin, to answer your question, you know, and I think it's been in the chat, but typically uh, your, your right to exercise those options expires after 90 days unless you negotiate some kind of extension, and that's becoming more common. But the, to the oh, yeah. point of what does an exit look like, one thing I would say is just understand if you're going in as a Series A or a very early stage executive that there's going to be a tremendous amount of dilution between probably between you and whatever the outcome is. So it's not 1%. It's 1% times 0.85 times 0.65, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you actually end up with is much less. Plus, we'll talk about preferences in a little bit. The other thing I'll say, though, is that a lot of ways are high five, right? You high five for you. Uh, we all know, right? Just raise right? So, we're hey, Richard, can you go on mute? <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Here's the point that I want to make raising $100 million is probably at a very high valuation. And you have to understand that, especially if you just joined, but even if you didn't just join, right? The investors need to make return on that investment, and that means the company has to exit at a multiple of whatever the valuation was. So if you raise $100 million at a $600 million valuation, the company needs to be worth $1.5 at least, but probably north of $2 billion. Right? So you have to understand the climate because it's not easy to make a company worth $2 billion. And in the previous – now, the world may be changed and maybe valuations – are coming into you know more realistic boundaries, but you should actually look for companies that have raised less money, even if they're not on the front page of TechCrunch, because they have more upside optionality, right? If I've only raised $10 million, I can sell the business for $200 million and everybody's happy. Single platform, right? Single platform's Classic a great outcome. example, yeah. $80 million exit, right? Now, some, most of the companies we've all worked for the last couple of years, they raised their Series B at a post money that was $100 million. They couldn't have sold for $80 million. So that's something yeah. to think about. All right, Sam, I want to give you some rapid fire here. We're, we're falling a little bit behind my, my OCD schedule. Uh, I've got just some, some basic terms, and we've used a bunch of them already. But can you give us just quick 10, 15-second definitions of each of these? Uh, 
and and what they mean pertaining to looking at a, a stock option agreement that gets presented to you. Uh, quantity of shares, we, we talked about this, but how would you define that really quick? The number of shares that you get. Are you talking about the number of shares outstanding or that just the... Just anyway. what's on your on your offer, yeah. Strike price? Strike price is the price of uh, the option that you would have to pay to purchase the stock. Cliff period? The cliff is before the cliff, you don't have any vesting at the cliff, a, a, a lump sum vests all at once. Typically, we're talking about a four-year vest with a one-year cliff. That means if you're there under a year, you don't get anything. At the one-year anniversary, 25% of your vest, of your options vest, which means 25, you have the right to purchase 25%. Right. Uh, vesting period? That's the length, the total length of the vest. So, so typically four years. years. Right. There's a question. Why is it four years? It's four years because in the olden days, that's how long it took for a company to repo. It takes a lot longer than that now. We we actually asked uh, Scott and I had Mark Roberge on the podcast, and we asked him, and he even said he didn't know. He's like, oh, I don't right. even know why that's four years. There's right. a Bill Shirley blog post about it somewhere that that you know in the olden days, it, their regulatory constraints were less, and so it was easier to go public. So smaller companies would go public anyway. Yeah, my understanding of that was that it actually comes from companies that the stock was already worth money, right? If you go work at Merrill Lynch, they're giving you generally a one-year uh, uh, cliff and a four-year vest, but you don't care because when you leave, they're worth money and you, you make money off of it right away. Um, so I don't know if there's truth to that, but what I've always been told is that that model was just sort of recycled and brought into the startup world and uh, it makes no sense, but it's it's what we've got. Um <clears throat> Uh, okay, exercise period is the period after you leave, how much time you have to exercise. Traditionally, it's about, as you said, 90 days, uh, but it's becoming more common to negotiate for longer periods. I will tell you, it is very important at, for you to try very hard to do that. Uh, and you're gonna have more leverage when you are accepting the job. Now, if you're an SDRA, forget about it, don't even ask, you're gonna be crazy to try to negotiate that. But if you're coming in as a VP or a CRO, uh, you should absolutely ask for a 10-year exercise period before you accept the job, and you should push for it. Because otherwise, what they're telling you uh, is that they essentially don't really want you to have your stock options. Um, at least that's that's my opinion. Well, they don't, there's a very strong incentive not to give you that, that benefit. And that's because if you don't exercise, the company absorbs the equity. And to the extent that the company thinks the equity is worth something, I can give it to other people, et cetera. And they get to re-gift it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Oh, and, and they plan that way. I think I, I think I asked you that earlier is, is what happens to those options. Right. And so when they, when a company decides, all right, we're going to put uh, 2 million shares or whatever, 20% as an employee stock option pool, and they know how many they're going to issue. They also know statistically how much of what they issue is coming right back to them, <clears throat> which just goes to show you that you should never expect to get everything that's, uh, that's being issued. All right couple more things to define really quick. And I, I think we touched on this a little bit, but just so we have a quick definition for everyone, the difference between preferred and common stock. Who wants to take it? Sam. Sam quick Sam quick definition. Sam is our dictionary. Preferred stock is, is just a different security and it comes with better rights and it's got more preferences and it's, it's, uh, it's got easier, quicker access to an outcome than common stock. And it's what investors negotiate for when they invest because they don't want to be in the same boat as us. They want to be in a better boat. It also so gives we, we are not getting preferred stock. Right. But it also means you get control on making the major decisions. Right. They, you don't get to go 
and have the same weight if you own one share of Berkshire Hathaway, you, you, your vote will not matter, right? It does not matter as a common stockholder. Well, Last again, to the like preferred, there's all kinds of different preferred shares. Some of them have voting rights and super voting rights, and some of them don't. Some of them don't even have any voting rights at all. They just get better access to the money. So, Sam, if I'm a VP and, and you're the CEO and I'm negotiating with you for my job, is it fair for me to ask who has preferred stock and, and what the terms are? It's fair for you to ask anything you want. Absolutely, 100%. Is it important for me to know that? You want to know what the preferences are. You want to know how much money you've raised, what are the preferences, because you're trying to understand what is what sits on top of my ability to get money out of the commons. So if there's, and typically they're going to get at least one time participating, right? Typically investors are going to say, I need to at least get my money out before we distribute any money to the common shareholders. So that's why raising a lot of money is a very bad thing, right? So if you got a middling company, typically what happens is like companies hot, series A, they raise this huge B right at the moment that they stall in their growth. They've now raised $50 million, but the company's only doing... 8 million in ARR with high churn, they're going to go into a C and you want to understand that there needs to be a lot of money distributed. $50 million needs to go out the door at a minimum before you get anything. So at a $100 million exit, it's a $50 million exit, not a $100 million exit. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. And I think somebody asked some, some questions about this as well. Do you have an opportunity to sell your stock to someone else? This is referred to as selling secondary. Uh, who wants to define it and, and give us a sense of who typically gets to sell secondary and who do you think should get to sell secondary? Well, first of all, yes, it's possible. <clears throat> I've actually, I've actually done this before. I've sold stock back to one of the uh, VCs who was dumping money into, into the company. So, so this means just to make sure we have a definition, we are at a, at, at some sort of an event where we are, are raising more capital or we're issuing more shares. And there is an opportunity for people who have vested shares or exercised shares to sell them to a new or existing investor. Not, that correct? not just at that part. Also, in, in my particular case, it was upon departing the company. Okay. And this, this was a way for me to raise the capital necessary to exercise the rest of my options. Ah, I see. So sell off some of them and use that capital to exercise the rest. That that, that was that's one particular example that that I've been a part of that I did. Yeah. Fred Mather and it teaches in Revenue Collective about cashless exercise, exactly to Scott's point, which is essentially a way of keeping less than the actual grant without coming cash out of pocket, because you basically sell the difference between the strike price and the new valuation and use that to exercise the rest of your options. And you can do that all in one transaction. You don't have to put up the cash. If they let you, they let you but yeah. yes, if they let you. But you know, a lot of this stuff, it's not. These aren't public companies, and it's there's no. The SEC doesn't regulate private companies in the same way. A lot of this stuff, you're like, what are the reporting requirements of a startup? There aren't any. Back yeah. to the company shareholder, they don't have to tell you shit. Yeah, so, and to, they don't. To Sam, to Sam's point on this, I, I initiated this process, and I was like, is that something that that you know we can do? And they're like. I don't know. Let me get back to you. They had no, they didn't know. There was no hard and fast rule. I pressed the issue and and so, you know, they they accommodated and and acquiesced eventually and I think they acquiesced because there was an investor who wanted this batch of uh of options that I had. But, you know, I I asked. It would never would have happened if I didn't ask and didn't push for it. And there was no rules about it to Sam's point. 
That's a great point. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in my career, I've seen two different scenarios. One was just uh, like, I, I was very fortunate where something was offered to me at the time I was parting away from the company. But, and I would say 99% of scenarios, it's what Scott's saying. If you don't ask, you won't get. Uh, and, and so when they're asking you to sign that separation agreement and they're asking you to not disparage the company, to not reveal trade secrets, to not hire their employees when you go to your next job, that is your moment to ask for these things. Uh, that is your moment to make your case for why it's fair, for why you deserve it. Of course, if you join Revenue Collective and now I've learned all the things I've learned from Sam, the real moment to ask for that is when you're before you sign your offer letter, uh, and and especially when when you know strike while the iron's hot, right? They they want to hire you at that point, um, but you do have a second chance to ask for things uh, at the time of leaving the company because they're going to ask you to sign a separation agreement, uh, and they generally really really want you to sign that, uh, and they want to to come to an agreement. So that's your chance, your second chance to ask for these things. Um, all right, let's move. On. I mean, yeah. I know. Yeah, sure. Them. No, it's okay. okay. Go having, ahead. Um, you asked. You asked. Uh, does everybody get a chance? Typically, n most people do not get a chance to sell secondary, and you should ask before you join the company. Has anybody sold secondary? Right, because what you want to understand is, particularly if you're an executive, the founder will give you a pitch about how we need to go on this journey. We need missionaries. It's going to be ten years, but we're going to change the world. This piece of marketing technology is, you know, going to help the poor and uh, you know, change world peace, et cetera, et cetera. But you want to understand, have they already taken money off the table? Because they, they are not obligated in terms of, again, reporting requirements, there aren't any. So oftentimes they will sell secondary at an early stage back in the day. You know, we don't know post COVID and this recession, I'm sure the terms are tougher, but back in the day, you know, six months ago, they would raise a $20 million series A, $20 million does not go into the balance sheet of the company. Right. So $18 million might go into the balance sheet of the company and $2 million might go to early investors, including the founders. You want to understand that before you join. It's not that it's they're not doing anything nefarious, in my opinion, like good for them. They had an opportunity to sell. They took it. But you want to understand what's their incentive system, because if I just put two million dollars in my bank account, I'm good for a couple years. Right. And you might still be hungry. You might not have that two million dollars. So you just want to understand what's happened before I got here so that I am not I know what I'm walking into. Now, they might not tell you, and I talked to a lawyer at Wilson Sonsini a couple months ago, and they said, we just did a Series A, and the founder expressly said, do not tell anybody else that I'm doing this. So they may choose not to tell you, but I think you should ask. Agreed. Agreed. So, so for the folks in the audience, what Sam is essentially saying here, and you see these stories in the news of these massive companies, big valuations, companies never strike a profit, they end up tanking. Somehow the founders walk away millionaires 10 times over. Uh, this is how it happens, right? Because they are they are taking money off the table when they're raising a round of capital, right? Let's say they're raising 20 million and they are going to uh, sell 5 million worth of their stock out of that 20 million. So that 5 million is going in their personal bank accounts. It's not going onto the company balance sheet. Um, but they are going to sure as hell, right, on Crunchbase that they just raised $20 million, even though 5 million of it went to their own personal net worth. Uh, and they're going to continue to to expect you to take that company uh, you know, to the finish line that you need it to go to in order for you to have something. But I think to Sam's point, if I'm reading between the lines, it's just nice to understand how comfortable are they and, and how badly do they need to get it to the same place that you need it to go to for you to get what you are owed. 
Hey, Colin, we got a bunch of questions coming in, so I don't know if you want to hold. Yeah, let's let's take some. We're we're a bit behind schedule, but it's okay. Let's go with it. Um, let's let's take a few questions. Yeah, and I can't remember. Did we discuss the difference between a trigger and a double trigger? We did not. So I don't so, think so, at least. So again, I'm going to turn it over to Sam as our as our uh, encyclopedia. For Wiki those Sam. Who don't know what that is that's a book. I'm not so. a, I'm not an expert on all things, but uh, so a trigger. What we're talking about is acceleration, right? So what we want to understand is I've been there a year. I'm on a four-year vest. The company gets acquired. Does that mean that all of a sudden the three years of unvested options immediately become vested and I get to realize the full potential? The answer to that question is no, unless there's acceleration provisions in your in the equity stock option agreement or the equity stock option plan. So what is acceleration? It just means something happens and my unvested equity accelerates. So there's a single trigger and a double trigger. Single trigger is very rare. What it means is there's an acquisition and all of a sudden all my invested equity accelerates. Why is that rare? That's not in the interest of the acquirer, right? It makes the company less attractive. I don't want everybody going out the door the minute that I make the acquisition, right? So I want there to, I want them to stick around. The, the acquirer wants you to stick around. Double trigger is- Not in um, every scenario though, right, Sam? In some scenarios you get acquired and your your role is obsolete, right? And, and you're gonna I, immediately I, get fired. Was the acquirer, that determination. I don't well, want it to be. Also happens because I was a right. victim. My company was getting acquired, and I was, you know, let go. Um, they hugged me out the door in a, in a good way, but within, you know, ninety days they got acquired. What was happening is they laid me off before the acquisition, right? Ah. Bought by a huge public company that you would all know, um, and. That was because the acquiring company will look through the spreadsheet of we don't want this person, this person, this person, this person, right? And so I was part of that group. Now, my company, I think, protected me. They came in and gave me a ton of uh, uh, cash and health insurance because they hugged me out the doors, I say. So it can happen that way. Now, and I've seen what I've seen in stock option agreements is is usually it defines what would happen in those scenarios, at least in, in the ones that I've had. Um, it defines, uh, you know, what would happen to your options if you were terminated in the first, you know, X days because of a liquidity, liquidity, uh, liquidity event. And and also what would be the scenario if at that liquidity event, you by default lost your job because they don't need to yeah. piece of sales. Or something. The other thing I want to make sure people understand is these things like triggers and double triggers that you negotiate. I don't think I've ever seen it as something to negotiate at an SDR or AE level. No, not even no. manager. Maybe a director level, you could negotiate that stuff. So I think yeah. you run off and tell everybody go do this. Like, be mindful of what you're trying to accomplish here, right? Like, you're trying to understand. You know, if you're an SDR and AE, your goal is to understand this as it's going to parlay into other roles in your life, hopefully. Like yeah. that's the. Yeah. That's by the way, by the way, they don't have to give you any trigger whatsoever. No. Right. Uh, so if you're if you're a VP of sales, you should 100% ask for a single trigger. You know why? Because they're the founder is going to assume, oh shit, this guy knows what he's talking about, and they're going to tell you, nope, you don't get a single trigger for all the reasons Sam was talking about. So then you now have a better chance to get double trigger. So now you start figuring out what are some of the triggers. So yes, obviously, like an acquisition might be one, but what if you get topped off? meaning there's somebody who comes in above you. That could be a second trigger. What if they change the nature of your role so you're no longer managing, let's say, an inside sales team and now you're managing a field sales team? That could be a trigger that helps you. If they move your office outside of 30 miles to meaningfully change your commute, that could be a trigger. 
There's all these things that you can negotiate up front that become double triggers. So this is a way for a VP of sales to protect themselves as best they can. There's no perfect kind of scenario, but I, I baked all these random things in. So I had like a dozen potential secondary triggers that you know I felt would be meaningfully uh, imp impactful for me. If you, if you lower my compensation, both base and or total you know, variable comp ability and whatnot. So all that is negotiable. Let me just underscore what Scott just said, because he's making a really important point for any executives out there that I just want to like, you know, plus one on or plus a hundred, which is if you ask for a double trigger, their, their default response will be to give you a clause that says if you're fired. And then you also have to make sure sometimes they say with that acceleration, not 100% of your unvested equity accelerates, only 50% might accelerate. So you want to make sure, A, that you're asking for 100% because acceleration is just a word that could mean any percentage. And then again, exactly to Scott's point, I asked for a double trigger at a company that I worked at. They came back and they said, if you're fired. And I didn't at the time think to say, or material change in job responsibility or geography, which is exactly what he just said, because they can just say, listen, your job's in Duluth. You know, I know you live in Austin. I'm not saying you're fi you're not fired. You're choosing to quit. I'm just telling you your job's 500 miles away. So yeah. all of those things should be the second trigger. That's a great point. I, I would have yeah. never thought of that. Yeah, one more question, and, and no disrespect to Duluth, by the way. Um, <laughs> but uh, hey, as you're progressing through your company, right? Are there ways to acquire more options? Um, Scott, you may be good at answering this. What happens if you get to your four years? Right, you make it to four years as a sales rep. Your options are there. All right, can I go ask for more? Right. So how do you negotiate new options and then can you negotiate them back to your original start date several years ago at that price? Right. You used to be able to do that. I'm not sure if you can anymore. I there was also so. in the first bubble, if I recall. Yeah, you, you can't you can't negotiate back. You can't backdate it to the original price. Right. That I don't I've never seen that that fly before at all. Um, you absolutely can negotiate constantly for more options. You just need to know that your vesting clock is going to start over. Yep. It's not going to backdate to your original start date. So if you've been there for two years and you get a, another grant, now you have two clocks. You have one clock that you're halfway through and another one that you're on day one of that has a brand new cliff. Um, so that that's very important to, to keep in mind. If you've been somewhere for four years and you're fully vested, um, from an equity only standpoint, there is no reason for you to stay put in that particular job, in my opinion. That's why I'll say from the employer. Just from equity only, right? You might be happy with the job, right. you might like the role, you might be able to get a different title eventually, you might like the cash, whatever. But unless they're giving you more equity, why, what are you sticking around for? So you absolutely should be negotiating for it. Um, yeah. From, and from the employer standpoint there, Scott, it, that's a that's a reason that you should have a program in place to keep those folks around to issue more stocks. I know we've done that at one of my startups. It was common practice that when they were approaching their four years, we we proactively wanted to talk to them about another grant. It's probably not going to be anywhere near the size of their initial one, especially if they were early. But it's enough to 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 continue for them to have that upside to stick around. Well, it, it depends also if you're getting promoted. So, so for example, yeah. you have one clock that is uh, as an AE, but you've been in that role for two years and now the company has grown and you've done well and you're moving into leadership. So now you have a new clock that starts as a sales manager and the number of options that you've been given might be larger. 
but they're they're different they're different clocks. But in some mind- cases, I've seen it be smaller. If you have an AE who joined really early, got a really nice grant, uh, better than later executives might get because they were so so early, uh, and then that person becomes a manager four years later, and they're like, wait a minute, this this grant is is doesn't compare to what I first got. And yeah, I think well, the, the most the most further along. The most important takeaway for for everybody, hopefully, in all this is like you don't get what you don't ask for. You know, yeah. so all of this stuff is negotiable. Sam made a point earlier about, um, you know, getting a, a second grant that kind of keeps you at a percentage level, right? And how rare that is. I've had that happen to me a couple of times because I pushed for it and lobbied for it both before I accepted my job there and then when it was happening. So I had it in writing that they would have to do this if, if we raised a particular round and I got diluted. And I still had to ask them and just make sure and hold their hand yeah. and make sure that they, yeah. actually, they actually did it. So you, you absolutely should. And but you should only be doing it if you intend to stay there. Because if somebody gives you an extra grant to keep you employed there, right? But you're you're looking around, you're like, I, you know, I didn't get any extra salary, I've got no upward mobility. That grant is meaningless for you if you're not gonna stay there for at least a, a year or you don't believe in the successful future of this particular company. You made a really good point there, Scott, of making sure it actually gets done, right? Uh, Even if you trust people, uh, you need to read these documents very carefully. You need to log into whatever system that they're using and make sure that things are put in there properly. Make sure that it's executed right. Um, I, I've seen just clerical errors. I've seen things just get forgotten. Uh, I like to think that that's not intentional, but if you're not checking, uh, whatever's on record is is really what what matters. It's not what you talked about, you know, in a conference room. Uh, so always check on that stuff and 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 own that. And, to the extent that you need to hire a tax attorney or or or, or a lawyer to to review things, um, because I'll tell you those those oh, Sam. they're Sam. very very hard to understand uh, the the legal jargon in, in these things. All right, guys, I think we I think we somehow covered almost everything in part four. Uh, we were going to talk here about exercise period, cost to exercise, the risk involved preferential treatment and the impact it can have on you. So just stop me if we didn't cover this stuff. Uh, Inability to sell secondary while founders are getting rich, tax implications, and what happens if a company exits before you vest. I think we actually hit on all of those already. Yeah? Okay. All right. Then then let's let's move into part five. Part five is where we're going to give uh, we're going to give some time. I think we've got we're going to have less time now than we originally planned, guys. But it's okay. Um, we're going to give some time to each speaker to go through some some talking points that that they see as hot topics, some ideas and and things that they think needs to change. Um, so let's kick it off, uh, Scott. We've got you here. I know you've got a handful of things. So so take it away. You're on mute, Scott. You're on mute. Let me. There we go. That is the. By the way, that is a total Richard Harris move right there. So I apologize to everybody. <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is the uh, expected earnings from a particular exit, um, and this is going to be real loose napkin math, of, of course. Um, so take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But let's say you have one percent and you have a hundred million dollar exit. Right. So there, there's your one million. But to Sam's point, there's all the dilution that's occurred. 
depending on how many rounds you've raised and whatnot. So let's say you got diluted by 30%. Now you're at 700K. Now you got to pay taxes. Let's say the taxes and, and whatnot amount to like 40%. Now you're at 420K, right? So if you have 1%, 100 million exit, a good case scenario for you is to make 400K, less than, less than half a million, right? And that's a real, again, napkin math, it's probably a very inflated, optimistic kind of number to even make that much. Um, I had a $175 million uh, exit and I had a couple percentage points and I ended up with just a little bit over the 400K amount. So if you're thinking about a $500 million exit or a $1 billion exit, just to do some napkin math for yourself, just multiply those by you know five times the 100 million number and 10 times and, and so forth. That's one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about. Um, the time frame, it, it's a complete fallacy that you are gonna make this number in any kind of time frame that you'd expect. Uh, that exit I was just telling you about, I got paid on that six years after I left. Six years where my money was out there from, from exercising. And I'm sitting there, you know, periodically every day, every week going, when the fuck is this exit going to happen? And I'm asking people who are there, what's going on, whatnot. It is a extremely long waiting game. Now, caveat to that, I always go into very, very early stage companies. So I bring this upon myself. Somebody mentioned before is like a seven to 10 year horizon nowadays instead of a four year horizon in order to have an exit. So if I go in and I spend two to three years at an organization, by nature of when I started there, I'm teeing myself up for a long waiting period. But that's that's got to be part of your mentality when you go to exercise. Like, am I okay with outlaying this cash for no expected return for years down the line? Scott, while you're on that topic, there's a question that relates to it in, in regards to how soon you should exercise something and how that can, can differentiate uh, the tax implication. Can you touch on that? What my opinion is... You, it depends completely on your financial situation. You should exercise as, as soon as you possibly can while your strike price is as low as possible. You might have a strike price of 10 cents right now. If that company raises another round and the strike price goes to a dollar, your tax implications now will be bigger because you'll get taxed on the gain from prior strike price to new strike price. If that makes if that makes sense, Colin, you and I talked about this not too yeah. long. Yeah, yeah, I, I fucked one that the, one up myself. One the, yeah, one of the smartest things you can do is if you've got a significant chunk of equity and you know the company is getting ready to raise or is just about to raise, exercise. Before, and is there? If, the new let's round. say you're let's say you're staying at the company or or, or whatnot. Um, I've heard. I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it, if you're if you exercise the options and you hold them for a certain amount of time before you you sell them or before there's a liquidity event, are there ways that you end up paying less in taxes when you do that? I think I heard that if you hold them, you own them for a year or something that you're paying different taxes. That, well, that's short term, long term capital gains. Go ahead, Sam. The, the, and I just put it in the chat. So there's short-term capital gains that you hold. I mean, that's like any stock. If you sell it before uh, a year, I think it's 35%, and if or whatever, I don't even know. And uh, if it's long-term, I think it's 20%. So yeah, there's major difference. And then the other thing I put in there is the QSBS exemption. And you're gonna have to read it because I don't. I'm not a lawyer, so you gotta understand it. But I think the basics of it are that if you own the stock, not the options, but the stock, 
four or five years and the company is below a certain threshold, and I think it's $50 million in assets, when you originally purchased the stock, I don't think you have to pay taxes on it at all. Uh, so that is a very special situation and another good reason. But read the article. It'll tell you all about it. But uh, that came into play with, uh, you know, with Gerson Lehrman Group, where that was a company that, you know, they paid a lot of money out to, to shareholders over the years. And, and a lot of folks had a great tax benefit because they had purchased the stock well in advance. Mm. So you know, if you believe in the company, I think Scott makes the right point. Believe, exercise before the valuation goes up so that you don't have to pay taxes. Thank you. Um, the next thing I kind of want to touch on is, and I've been asked this question before, is like, how, how do you optimize for cash versus equity? Um, again, depending upon everybody's financial situation, maybe as well as risk profile. But what I typically tell people is optimize for cash early in your career, optimize for equity later in your career. So at my, at my stage of life, um, you know, been a VP of sales a number of times at this, at this point, like if I go get a, a VP of sales job, the cash I'm going to make in terms of salary and commissions is roughly this, the same probably in each of those, those orgs. And it's not going to do much to change my life. And I'm at a situation in a place in my life where I'm looking for fuck you money. I'm looking for something that will generationally change the game for my family and my kids and I, right? And so I will probably be more skewed to optimizing for equity. But early in my career, I didn't optimize for equity at all. I was trying to get experience. I was trying to move up the ladder in terms of job title. I was trying to optimize for a higher base salary, bigger OTE, more responsibility, that type of thing. And so that, that's kind of how I, how I think about that. If you're earlier in your career, you might want to optimize for cash. Later in your career, you can change that, uh, that dynamic and optimize for, for equity. That's a, that's a big piece of advice. I'm curious to ask if, if Richard and Sam agree or if you see that differently. So I go, I, I'm a little bit different than Scott. I've been doing stocks and options my entire life. Like my very first stock that I bought at the age of 15 a long time ago was MTV, right? And this is, and I'm, by long time ago, I mean in the, in the mid 80s, Scott was maybe four. You were born ago. Yeah. So, um, Scott so was I, still optimizing for cash. Yeah. So I, I've always been like, yeah, let's, let's focus on the stock. And, and, and that's, I think that's a naive approach. You know, that's a traditional approach in a, in a different mindset. And I think that was probably a challenge for me. I probably thought I knew more about this stuff than I do or did at that point because I had been doing stuff and I still play traditional stock market games um, on a regular basis. So I, I didn't do that. I just sort of was a very aggressive about salary anyway. Um, so whether you call it optimizing, I was, this is the difference between Scott and I, I'm sort of like, no, do this, do this, do this. Scott negotiates his way through everything. And then he makes them feel good about having them do that for him. As me, I'm a little bit more direct. And so I have not done it probably the way that I should have. Sam? I, uh, yeah, I agree with Scott. I mean, I, I would even put it differently. I don't even think you should optimize for cash early in your career. I think you should optimize for experience. I think like, um, I think as you get, you know, into your mid thirties, then you got to start thinking about, gen, you know, building wealth. I think before that, it's really just about to the point someone, I think maybe Richard said, you know, it's like, look for exits, look for great experiences, look to learn as much as possible. That's what's going to generate wealth for you over time. And that's, that's what I think. I think um, I do see, and I advise, you know, a lot of people in revenue collective, 
come to me and they want to talk about cash comp and, and you know, at the VP level and above. And I typically tell them it's a, they're, they're thinking about it wrong because I remember um, having that call with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People are like, and it's often because they haven't watched something like this. They haven't thought about it or they're scared. They're intimidated by this concept of equity and they think it's mysterious. So they're like, I got to make 225. They offered me 200. What should I do? And you know, my personal opinion is like, well, who gives a shit? Like the difference, $25,000 in a year is $2,000 a month is a thousand dollars a paycheck is 500 bucks after taxes. So like is that, who cares? I, not, I don't mean that. I'm sure it's meaningful to a lot of people, but at, an, at a level where you're a VP, like I really don't give a shit about 500 bucks a paycheck. What I care about is exactly what Scott said. Like at a certain point, as you get into your thirties and into your forties, you need to start, if you're you know trying to, you need to start getting rich. Like at some point you need to start generating wealth. So how do you, how do you generate wealth? And I know that there's like rich dad, poor dad and the millionaire next door. And like, you know, you could live like a monk and never spend any money. And I get it. And that's a, that's one way to save. And that's one way to generate. I'm going for lump sum cash opportunities and equity is one of those lump sum cash opportunities. Let me put out there one thing though. I, I think that, there are other things you can ask for instead of equity that function like equity, like milestone payments, right? Because the reality is that um, oftentimes you're not going to value the equity the same way I have, that the same way that the founder of the company will. The founder of the company is going to think the equity is incredibly valuable, and you might think it's just a lottery ticket, and you're not sure how to feel about it. So one of the things you might do in a negotiation is say, "I want two and a half percent." They come back and they say, "No fucking way. Uh, we've never given that. We can give you one percent." You say, "You know what?" How about this? How about give me three quarters of a point instead of 1%. But when we get to 10 million ARR, I want you to write me a check for $350,000. Or at the next financing round, I want you to write me a check for $250,000. And if you structure it that way, I as a founder, I would prefer that. I would prefer that. I don't mind paying people cash. Equity I think I prefer that too as the VP. I don't, I don't want a, a I don't bunch mind of that. people on the table. Like, Equities forever. Once, once Scott or Richard or you exercise your, you're you're on my cap table forever for 20 years. I don't want to do business with you for 20 years. So I think like we should look for opportunities to trade equity, which really isn't going to be worth as much as they tell us, and look for opportunities to get those lump sum payments in other ways. Yeah, so. and the, and as a sales leader, those those ARR milestones that Sam was talking about is is the cleanest, simplest, easiest way to do that, especially if you're going in early stage. Milestone yeah. at 2 million, milestone at 5 million, milestone at 10 million, milestone at 20 million. I think I would take that over all the complication and, and probably that's financially stupid, but that motivates me more, I think, seeing the, the goalpost. It's not necessarily financially stupid. One could argue that it's actually smarter because you're 100% in control now. Yes, yes. As, as the operator and as the builder and as the executor. Right? It's exactly yeah. tied to your performance. Yeah. You can take it and execute on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. The only, other, the, only thing, the only other thing that I want to bring up in my my section of the, the rant is the antiquated four-year vesting schedule, as Sam alluded to. Um, here's why it exists. You know why it exists? Because all of us fucking let it exist. Because none of us <laughs> point back and say no. And I'm telling you, if all the sales VPs out there, from me to Colin to everybody else who's on this call who's in a director or VP of sales level role, if all of us were like, no way, four years, give me a break. That doesn't make any sense. Then the game would start to change because founders would have a harder time finding sales VPs to go lead their organizations. What makes sense 
is stage appropriate vesting schedules. If you're not going to do the milestone stuff that Sam's talking about, stage appropriate vesting schedules matter a ton. We've got an 18 month average, uh, you know, lifespan, if you will. Right. Well, I'm an early stage VP. I go in, I'll get you to 20, 25 million ARR. It's going to take me two to three years, period. That's what I do. I've done it six times. I've helped God knows how many companies now do that exact thing. How are you going to fucking tell me that I don't deserve my full vest just because I did it in two and a half to three years instead of four years? So wait, you did it better and I'm giving you less? That's not fair? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So instead, instead, why not just say, look, you're the early stage VP. We're probably going to top you off anyways when you get to 25 million because we're going to disrespect you and tell you that you've never taken a company to 100 million before. So you're going to end up getting topped off and fired or, or <sighs> I've never seen that happen, Scott. Door, right? <laughs> why, why, not, why not just give me my full one and a half or 2% or whatever it is if I achieve what I went there to do? And, and, and my goal is to sort of start this revolution, if you will, for all the sales leaders out there to stop accepting this four-year vest, start pushing back and go for either these milestones or this stage appropriate vesting schedule. And I, I think... I really do think that if we push hard enough, things will start to things will start to change. But it won't change if there's VPs out there who don't know any better, right? And just accept whatever they're given. That's one of the reasons why I really love forums like this is because hopefully the 967 people who are on this call right now pause for a moment and they think about these things and they're like, you know what? I remember what Scott said or I remember what Richard said, and they push back a little bit more and we negotiate a little bit better. Or would you say if, if they're if they won't budge on the four year, then you just need more options. You need to be okay with only getting seventy five percent or fifty percent of them. Well, there, there's you could ask for more options. You could do the milestone thing, like Sam's talking about. I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways to kind of go about it, right? But what we need to do is take the power back away from the founders and take control. We are the engine that makes these companies go. Every department, I'm sure, probably thinks that. Okay. But unless you have an e-commerce site that makes money without a sales organization, we are the engine that makes this company go. And as a sales leader, you're the one steering the ship and you're the one guiding it. Don't tell me that I deserve to make 400K when this motherfucker is about to make 400 million off of everything that I've done and built. That doesn't make any sense to me. And you need to go into the, the room when you have that conversation with your fucking battle face on because... If you think that they aren't really good and really prepared for that conversation, you're out of your mind. You need to be 10 times more prepared. Uh, they are good at it. They are great at making the every everything they're offering you sound generous. They're good at almost making you feel guilty for asking for more. Uh, if you're at a successful startup, they've raised money. Those CEOs know how to negotiate. You need to be able to one-up them. Uh, and they will play on your emotions and they'll make you feel bad. And they'll do all of those things. And don't think for a second that they don't know exactly what they're doing. They're fucking you and they know it. So call it out. It's okay. Sorry. I had to add my, my little rant in there. Scott, you have, uh, you have more. I'm done. My topics. I see the conch to those two. All right, Richard, my man. I see here there are four kinds of fuck you options. Is that what we're going to get to hear about? hear a couple of things around that. Of course, I'm sure my kids will hear this. They're fantastic. Scott, bring Caleb and Braden in the room so I can teach them too, right? So um, so the, the thing I want folks to understand is that based on where you are in your career stage, those are the kind of options you're going to get, right? You're going to get either, you know, fuck yeah or fuck you options, right? 
fuck you options to in the real world are seven figures that, as Scott said, change the existence of not just your lifestyle, but generations, right? If you can get a million dollars and do something with that and parlay that into something else, right? For some, it could be 500,000. That's fine. It depends on where, where you're coming from and, and where you live. Um, but you're also, you know, then there's the 600 figure, you know, the, the six figure, and then there's the five figure options, right? Like, I think the, the key is that I want people to know the SDRs, the AEs who are listening to this call and learning. I hope you've taken a ton of notes, but there are other things you could negotiate that are not just options, right? And I, I at least want to give people some of that, right? Because part of this is learning how to ask for these things is about learning how to ask for these other things later, right? You should be asking for, well, now it's kind of easy, work from home, right? That that used to be hard. I used to coach Scott on that one. Like he got two years, two weeks off every summer to go to Lake Albanar, right? Built it into his plan, right? That's easy now. Um, but negotiating that, negotiating your cell phone, Think about the food stuff that they're giving you, right? Like if they're bringing food in or they were bringing in food in, you know, that's a piece of compensation, right? You know, all of you who are now working from home and that food's not coming in, what's it now costing you per month? That's, that's such that's a good point, Richard. I, and I did not think of that as a VP. And when we went remote, I was shocked at how many people that really impacted their life that right. they did not have access. They were now spending more money to work from home. You're spending, you're spending $150 to $200 a month. I mean, a week yeah. in some cases, yeah. right? And granted, you know, I don't want everybody going out getting happy meals either. Like that's unhealthy. Like, so yeah. think about those things. Think about, you know, your healthcare. And it's going to sound weird. You're going to be like, wow, I'm going to, do I sound like an idiot asking for them to pay for my cell phone? Well, now parlay that into when you want to ask for 10,000 more shares. This is your runway to practice that, to ask for those other things that matter. So for people who are earlier in their career, um, I just want to make sure you understand that these there are tons of other things to negotiate for um, that are really really important. So I also something think I would I would, I would add to that real quick. I think a great thing to ask for is for them to invest more in you in in putting you through certain training sessions or certain programs. That's a very hard thing for them to say no so to. There, there's one thing on that. So there's two parts of that. One is how are you going to help me keep learning so I can be better for you. Yeah. Right. That's what you're selling. Hey, you're investing in me so I can go help make us more money so I can make you that millionaire billionaire. The other thing they can that I think people should be asking for, particularly earlier generations, although I think it can happen in your 30s and 40s, is help me pay off my student loan. Like I want some kind of stipend, some kind of way where this is going and you know it's going to my student loan because that means a lot too. that is a different way to invest in your education, so to speak. So anyway, so I'll pause there and I'll. I'll Let me, I want to add a quick point on that, Richard, just from, from the VP's point of view, be very cautious around when and how you ask for things. Um, there is definitely a time and a place that's optimal for asking. And there are times and places that are very much not. Uh, if you are coming off of the worst quarter of your career, and I've seen this happen, and I just walk out of those meetings like, what were you thinking? That's not the time to, to go make that ask. If you're coming out of a quarter where maybe you did really well, but the company is struggling, it's probably also not the best time to ask. So keep both of those things in mind. I think a really good time to ask is at your one-year review um, or, or at some sort of a scheduled review where you did really, really well. That's a good time to ask. You're okay to ask. So I disagree. If the company's doing, really? doing well, I think you can politely find a way to say, look, you know, 
I, I need I need these things. And then you get creative I mean, about the things you want. The company's doing. If the company's running out of cash and they just failed to raise their round, it depends, I guess, the scenario. But point is, be conscious of that. Don't be tone deaf to that there is more going on than just you. Because if you walk in at the wrong time to make an ask, you can blow it. When Whereas if you waited a month or did it a month earlier, it would have gone well. Point being, th the timing is is important. Sam, did you have uh, something Kelly, to add? I saw you put your hand up before. I put it up and then Kelly, that might be Kelly Snyder, but then she just put it in there, which is one of the things you should ask for is the cost of your Revenue Collective membership. So that was what I was and Make sure to pay annually so after they shit can you, it's it's prepaid. Damn, damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Richard, you got more? Or are you good? Good to go. All right, Sam the man, you're up. Uh, I covered a lot of it. I, I, I think um, I think we overvalue to the point of this conversation a lot of the comments I've made. I think that um, there are very specific situations where um, where equity is going to be worth something. And I think that we should just be mindful of other things that you can ask for that function like equity. I think that, you know, I personally, and this was controversial, like I don't believe that I don't believe that AEs or SDR should get equity, uh, kind of to Scott's point. Why? Because you're not going to make – because I want to give that equity to people where it can really change their life. I'd rather give another two points to Scott than give 0.1% to 20 other people or to 40 other people where the outcome for them is not meaningful. But to the company, it is meaningful because that's two points. And it would be meaningful if I could reallocate that to executives or more senior people. So that's a different rant. But the point I would make is just there's there's things like milestone payments. The other thing that is, you know, honestly, because I get fired all the time, uh, severance is another thing that functions like equity. And, um, you know, my last company before I started working on Revenue Collective full time, uh, I know I negotiated for 12 months of severance paid in one lump sum. That is the same. That was very, very similar, if not exactly the same amount of money that Scott made on that uh, on that $175 million exit. And so there are other things that we can ask for that are cleaner and easier to understand as opposed to just assuming that we should get equity because it's like a lottery ticket. Well, you know, you gotta think about whether it's gonna be worth anything. That's, that's um, that, that would be the point that I would make. And with that, I'm done. Sorry, I was just typing out some <clears throat> some responses. All right, we've got a little bit of time. Um, let's take uh, some questions. Somebody just asked, who would you recommend tapping for advice during negotiations? Uh, I recommend that you're in Revenue Collective. Uh, it's been the greatest resource for me. Personally wish that, that I was in there before I negotiated my my last job, but uh, during my departure, it was super helpful and I've, I've seen them help lots of people. Do you want to involve a lawyer? Uh, Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lawyer is probably gonna be best to help you review the documents, make sure they actually say what they're supposed to say, um, and maybe they can identify some things that could be changed, but are, are they the right person to go to to help negotiate? They could be. I mean, it just depends how senior you are. Um, if it's a, when is it a bad time to have a, have a lawyer? I guess is yeah. the question. When you don't have money to be able to afford one, that's the bad well, time. Yeah, be exactly. ready for a thousand dollars an hour for for a good one. Right. So to negotiate the point about Revenue Collective, Revenue Collective is eighty bucks a month, and you get yeah. access to two thousand plus people who, presumably, at least half of them might be able to help you with this kind of negotiation. Or you can talk to a startup lawyer who's going to cost 
a thousand bucks an hour in New York City or, or whatever, right? Yeah, and it's going to take them ten hours equivalent to actual thirty-five minutes yeah. of work. My best piece of advice there is build a relationship with somebody who's been there and done that a few times, and and it costs nothing. Yeah, I I've been working on, and it's just really hard, but I got a lot of good nuggets from this. I'm working on putting together an ebook uh, about all of this stuff, compiling everything. I don't know when I'll feel confident enough to to actually release it because everything changes so fast. But uh, uh, hopefully that will be a resource to some of you someday. What else do we have in here, Richard? From a question perspective, yeah, we got most of them. We see there was one. Oh, there was one question about. Um, you know, what do you do if, you know, you're based in one company, like, let's just use this. It's an American company. You have employees in other countries, right? Any advice about if I'm the employee in the other country, right? What, you know, what can I do? What should I do? And I suppose it could go reverse. Hey, I'm working for a company that's based out of the UK or, or somewhere else. Um, what kind of things should I look for? In, in terms, terms of their stock options, like like should they expect something different? So I worked for a, a, a Paris-founded company. Um, the only thing that I noticed it was different, I mean, A, I shouldn't expect something to be different just because they're based in another country. If they're hiring people here in New York, I uh, should be getting, you know, what what is the, the market standard in New York? Um, if, if that's what the question is, uh, I did notice that you will see some things when you start reviewing the documentation that culturally just maybe different, which is something that maybe is a norm in that country that here is not very much the norm. And some of those things weren't necessarily fair or unfair. They were just different. And they were like, well, I've never seen that before. Um, some of them were actually good. One of them not so good. Um, but yeah, I, that's the only thing I'd noticed is that there could be some cultural differences where maybe we say there's a one-year cliff. And these are just examples, by the way. Um, maybe in, in the US, the one-year cliff is, is normal. Maybe in another country, it's normal that it's a year and a half or that it's less. Um, and there could be some different terminology in there that might be favorable to you or unfavorable. But um, yeah, it's worth looking through. <clears throat> that's, I mean, I, I'm not sure if that's exactly what the question's asking, but cultural differences, I mean, other than that, I think you should be treated the way that you should be treated. Different countries have different legal and tax implications. That's the biggest issue. Like the UK is far more punitive actually on mm. foreign distributions and so the options are worth less in the uk if coming from an american company for a bunch of tax reasons so that's just what you got to know is and this is not we're not no, none of us are lawyers or accountants uh you, you got to understand the tax law and the securities law in your country and how because windfalls are taxed really differently <clears throat> that's a good point yeah the company i joined was founded in paris but they they incorporated in the us so I didn't. I didn't see much of of that in my experience, and and I will just double down on on. Uh, I meant to do this in the beginning on Sam's disclaimer. We are not lawyers. Uh, we have experience in this area, but uh, don't hold us legally uh, responsible. <laughs> I recommend that you consult a lawyer, a tax attorney on anything before you make a big uh, financial decision uh, or career decision based on it. We have advised you to the best of our knowledge. I don't know if that's legal jargon, well written, but. It sounded good. Um, any more questions? Or are we ready to to close out here? No, there's a couple more. Uh, one was, you know, is is how valuable is the story of I've been a part of an IPO, right? As Very. part of your career. Very. It's pretty valuable. Very valuable. Uh, at any stage of your career, that's extremely valuable. Like I said earlier, uh, 
I watched it catapult people's careers. Uh, not it wasn't an, it wasn't an IPO, but it was a, a large acquisition. And those folks would not have been able to score the jobs that they scored. And yeah. I will tell you that when I left Single Platform, I actually joined there the month after the acquisition. They got acquired for a hundred million. I think it was eighty million in cash, something like that. They got acquired for a hundred million dollar exit. They were doing a very small amount of revenue. The company was only two years old and I joined the month after. So I wasn't even there through that phase, but then I got to grow with the company and I got to hire hundreds of salespeople and be a part of rapid scale. I then completely skipped over the director role and went straight into a VP role. And what was the number one reason that they wanted to talk to me and to interview me? No question, everything that I experienced at single platform. That was the reason they met me. That was the reason they wanted to talk to me. It was every question they asked me in the interview was, how did Single Platform do this, 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 and this? And the fact that I lived through that was 100% the reason that I got the job. Well, maybe yeah. maybe I had a little something to do with it too. But uh, without that, I wouldn't counterpoint, have gotten it. Counterpoint to all this, um, Colin and others like him being the exception, um, title inflation is very real. So if you're if you're looking at folks who have been through you know an ipo or a big acquisition or whatever and you're thinking about hiring them yeah it's it's a signal that <clears throat> they've been successful and whatnot but that doesn't mean they're suddenly ready to like you know be in charge of everything right there's a lot of people i'm sure that colin knows and we don't have to talk about them at single platform that moved into roles that they were not ready for and those folks struggled and or failed. And some of them I know went into leadership roles and they weren't just ready. So yeah, if, you're, yeah. if you're interviewing people who've been through some of these events, don't, don't, don't let that blind you to you know, real, real talent that's in front of you. Colin's the exception, but there's plenty of people who got roles that they weren't quite ready. It's a great point. When they, like if go they ahead. leave tap or Salesforce and they've got some VP title and then they go to a startup and they don't, they've never actually built anything. Right? <laughs> they, they don't know what it means yeah. to actually write. They the know job. how to follow a playbook that was written right. for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, kudos for them for being in those great places, but yeah. make sure that if you're interviewing people based on their success, that you ask them about the down and dirty, where have you done this? Where have you gotten your hands dirty making this kind of sausage? Like, did you really get in there and do it? Because if they haven't, then, yeah. then you are buying an overinflated title. Yes, yes. Great point. Um, all right, guys, I think we're just about up on time here. Want to say thank you once again to, to Scott, uh, Richard, and Sam. Uh, if you are in sales, you and you are not a member of Revenue Collective and you want to be, go to Revenue Collective's website uh, and, and fill out the application. If you are in sales or not in sales and have never read Addicted to the Process, uh, you need to go on Amazon right now. It's the best value. I think it was, what is it, like 10 bucks, Scott? It, 10 bucks, yeah. It's, it's my, it is my favorite uh, sales book, particularly for people just getting into the career. I actually bought a copy of that for every salesperson I've ever hired in my last role ever since I read it. Uh, highly recommend it. Check out Surf and Sales whenever quarantine's over. I'm sure those guys are going to be getting back out to Costa Rica or somewhere cool. Uh, what else? I recently got to, to sit in on a free training that Richard's been doing for the Harris Consulting Group. Uh, and I gotta tell you, I was blown away. I mean, I, I, I've been in sales, I've trained hundreds of salespeople, hired hundreds of salespeople. I learned a lot 
and 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 I immediately started re- recommending it to other people. I think Richard's doing that for free again. Richard, when is that? How can people get, sign up? Yeah, it's June 23rd and 24th this month. Um, so yes, we'll be doing it, and you can find it on my website or hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll send you a link or find it here real quick and send it in the chat. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. If you enjoyed today, uh, please share the recording with people. Spread it around. We'll we'll be sharing it, Sam. I believe through through email, or they just use the same link, right? Same link. The same link will work in ten minutes. You can watch the recording, uh, and uh, we'll you know we'll send out a thank you email. But the same link works. Awesome. And so uh, if you guys are not already following all of us on LinkedIn, we're all putting out great content all the time. Uh, A bunch of us are on Twitter, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. So follow along, stay in touch with us. And I hope that you enjoyed tonight. Great job. Great job. Thanks, Thanks, everyone.